Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of Potomac Perspective. I'm Brian Gardner, Chief Washington Policy Strategist at Stiefel. Uh, my colleague and co-conspirator, uh, Neil Shapiro, he'll be back with us next time. But today, I'm pleased to welcome a special guest, uh, Jake Sherman uh, from Punchbowl News, as we count down to the midterm elections. Jake's the founder of Punchbowl. He's been covering national politics for more than a decade. His reporting has been mostly focused on Congress, the congressional leadership, and the politics of legislating. He chronicled all the major legislative battles during the Obama and Trump presidencies, continues into the, the Biden administration. He's traveled around the country and the world reporting on power and politics. He's also the co-author of The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America, which was a New York Times and national bestseller in 2019. Welcome, Jake. It's great to have you on our podcast. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so I, I think uh, Neil may have mentioned when when he invited you that uh, we we talk about baseball frequently. That's probably why Neil's not here today. I think he's still lamenting the loss of his Mets, and I'm I'm still in grief uh, over my Yankees. So um, I won't I won't ask you to opine on on, on baseball, but um, that that's kind of typically how we we kick things off. But uh, why don't you why don't we kick things off by telling us and our audience um, about your new endeavor, because Punchbowl is still relatively young. Um, it's it's still the new kid on the block in, in Washington in the press. So um, tell us about uh, Punchbowl and, and how it's different from your competitors. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll talk about baseball first. I am a big Washington Nationals fan. So I am, uh, what, three years removed from a World Series, which is um, uh, more recent than the Mets, I think we could say. But actually, it's, it's funny because um, my, I have three children. My, my middle daughter was born in 2019, sorry. Yeah. 2019. And, um, I, I said at, at her, when she was born, I, I, we had a party at my house and I said to the crowd, I said, listen, my, my dad's team, the New York Mets won a world series the year, the, the season after I was born 1986, I was born 1985. And um, so I need the Nationals to win in 2019 when my daughter was born, um, and they did. Um, and I, I am, uh, uh, I won't get into all the specifics about my um, uh, frustration that the Nationals have gotten rid of their entire team over the last couple of years, but it is something that <laughs> it is something that lingers with me. But I'll talk a little bit about Punchbowl News now to get away from the baseball, the baseball uh, conversation. So. Uh, myself, Anna Palmer, my co-founder, uh, John Bresnahan and Rachel Schindler, my other two co-founders, there's four of us. We all worked together at Politico um, for a long time. Rachel uh, was somewhere else in between Politico and starting Punchbowl News. But um, we our, our theory of the case was simple. A few things. Number one, we wanted to focus very intently, very um, intensively on the congressional leadership, which is... Um, the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, Minority Leader in both chambers, and because uh, we believe they are the center of the universe in Washington, and that's and we feel like we have a better expertise into that, better lens into that world than anybody else. Um, we don't chase shiny objects. We focus very, 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 very uh, tightly on them. That's number one. Number two is we uh, view our audience as a community, meaning. Um, are we we don't let we don't just feed you stories and then say you figure it out on your own we have we foster constant conversation between our 
our community about our content, um, whether that's brown bag lunches, which we do quite frequently, a, a newsmaker event, social events. So we kind of think of our, our company as creating an ecosystem um, in Washington and beyond about the power, uh, the, the politics of legislating and power people politics, which is kind of our credo. So um, we started with four people. We are today, I believe, 14 people. Um, and we started at the beginning of 2021, and it is almost the end of 2022. So we're almost two years old. We are relatively new, but we are very proud um, of what we created and uh, what I think is just a consistently good product day in and day out. Well, my, my compliance department will probably cringe at me getting close to making any kind of endorsement. But, um, uh, you know, for for those who who like politics and most of our listeners are outside the Beltway, they're they're financial advisors, our clients and institutional investors. Um, but if you're interested in politics and what goes on in Washington, it, it's a great read. And I, and I highly recommend that people check out uh, the website. Um Let's let's kind of get into the midterms a little bit. Let's set the stage. So, you know, kind of walk us through what's at stake and what are what are the key issues driving driving the races? Well, a few things to to keep in mind. Um the, the party out of power typically wins, I think it's 26 seats in the midterm election in the House of Representatives. Uh that's a historical standard. There's only two times that the party out of power did not win seats. That was uh, 1998 when um, Clinton Clinton's impeachment was was kind of hot and all over the news. And then there's number this, and then there's 2002, right after the September 11th attack. So those are the two big instances. Now, um, Republicans need to net a small number of seats, uh, six seats, to take back the majority. So um, they're about, you know, depending on who you ask, between 30 and 50 seats in play. So using kind of um, the odds here, it would appear that uh, Republicans have a pretty good chance of taking back the majority. The Senate is a much more complicated scenario. I don't feel comfortable in making any predictions there, but it could end up a 52-48. It could end up 50-50 again. We'll have to see how that turns out. Those A lot of races are very close, although sitting here today, uh, beginning of November, uh, a lot of those races in the Senate seem to be uh, breaking toward Republicans, although not all of them, and it depends on what poll you look at. Now, what are the issues that are driving this election? Clearly, Republicans believe it is um, inflation, safety issues, crime and safety issues, and um, uh, gas prices, the, the three main issues, and uh, with an undertone of Biden is not, um, has been reckless in his foreign policy and in, in pulling out of Afghanistan and COVID restrictions, all of those things. So that's that's kind of the main issues Republicans see. Now, Democrats suggest that um, the, their party has been adept at bringing the country out of a, a, a pandemic, and they want to, in their words, want to protect Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Republicans want to slash it, and they want to protect a woman's right to choose uh, uh, and believe that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was a monumental mistake and something that they want to correct. So those are the kind of broad outlines that we see now, of course, every race, I, I covered sports when I was in college and the athletic director used to say to me all the time, this is why you play the games, right? You got to play the games to see who wins. So um, this is why you have elections because these issues, it's not the same across the board. Elections are won on a case by case basis, depending on the candidates and the circumstances in each district in each in each state. So it's kind of different across the board. Um, and um every candidate will run a race the way they see fit and the way they see um, their ability to do so. 
And, and, and probably even, would you agree with this? Probably more so when you're saying each race is individual and different, even more so at the Senate level than the, yes. than the, than the House? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mitch McConnell has been, has been um, uh, known to say you got to have good candidates. It's all candidate specific. And Republicans thought for some time that Herschel Walker in in Georgia and uh, Blake Masters in Arizona were not up to the up to the task to win those two seats. Now they seem to be bouncing back a little bit. But yeah, absolutely. Those are based. Those are, you know, 20, 30 million dollar, if not more races in in large, diverse states with lots of constituencies. And they're much more kind of presidential level in the sense that there are many presidential races in a, in a, in a, in, a, in some respects. So yes, much more candidate specific and much, although tethered to the national mo- mood, um, uh, not completely tethered to the national mood always. And, and so you, you said you don't like to, to forecast. So I'm not going to ask you to, to handicap the outcomes, but you know, as you look around the country, both on the house side, the Senate side, um, Senate races, uh, are, are there, a, a, you know, a couple of bellwether races that you're paying more attention to than, than others? Not, no. I mean, listen, of course, in the Senate, you're, we're looking at, you know, we're looking at Arizona, uh, Georgia, um, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, North Carolina, all the big states in Nevada ever, that everybody else is watching. But, um, I don't think, I mean, there's a theory out there that if, if, you know, it's a big Republican wave, everything breaks Republicans way. And that's sometimes true, sometimes not. So I don't, I don't think that's a fair generalization. I mean, there's no such, there is obviously such thing as a, uh, a bellwether race in theory, but in practicality, it's just, it works out quite differently. So, you know, a, a question that I get asked a lot, and you probably get this too, is, you know, especially down the stretch, is there anything that can, um, break the election one way or another? Are there outside influences that come in? And, you know, obviously the, at the end of last week, we, we had um, the the attack on Paul Pelosi. Um, and, you know, and there've been reactions from from both sides of the aisle over the weekend. And it, it's a, it's, it's a horrible incident and it, it's a very emotional incident. Does that come into play, do you think, in any of the races? Does it have an impact on the outcome of the midterms? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't. I mean, it's horrible. Um, uh, it was clearly somebody who was, according to police reports and court records, quite disturbed. Um, right. I don't think that that's necessarily dispositive in the in the election. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but uh, I think, listen, short of, God forbid, a nuclear war or some sort of large scale g- global disruption, I don't think that um, I don't think there's any I, I, it's tough to say, but I don't see anything right. on the horizon that would compl- I mean, maybe Trump indicted or something like that. But I don't think there's anything that's really at this point, you know, sitting here a week ahead of the election going to change any major uh, dynamics. So let's for a second assume that Republicans win at least one chamber, whether it's the House or the Senate, um, uh, you know, at least some level of divided government. And what does that mean for for policy and what's Washington going to look like in, in that kind of scenario? Yeah, I think a few things. Number one, if Republicans take the House and not the Senate, uh, you're obviously looking at um divided government once you, once again. I mean, our country tends to prefer divided government. 
um, just based on how many times we have it. Um, uh, one party rule in Washington is relatively rare and doesn't typically last that long um, in the modern era. I think a few things. I think number one, um, uh, there is a, a general theory of the case that um, there'll be a lot of investigations, a ton of investigations into the Biden administration, into his family, into tech companies, into all of those things that we kind of anticipate that that we see the writing on the wall. Um, I, I think that you're going to get a lot of you know, one party, one chamber bills, bills that pass the House that don't see the light of day in the Senate. Remember, the Senate still has that 60 vote threshold, which is very difficult to break. Now, from a practical sense, there's a couple things that need to get done. The government needs to be funded. That will have that will come up in December before before the new Congress that will again come up most likely at the end of September of 2023. We have the debt ceiling, which will happen in the second half of 20. 2023, if not dealt with in the lame duck session, which I don't have a, a firm view on whether that will happen yet. A lot will depend on the election and how bold the White House wants to be going into the lame duck session. Um, and then we have a, a whole host of retiring of, of sorry, um, uh, expiring tax provisions from the 2017 tax bill that come up at the end of this Congress at so the end of 2024, early 2025, that Congress is going to need and, and President Joe Biden, who's going to be in office at least until the end of 2024, needs to wrap, they need to wrap their minds around those things. So those are the big things we're kind of keeping an eye on. And um, let's just say there's a, a Republican sweep, uh, the Republicans take over the Senate. Um, what, what's the, you know, is there effect? I mean, on the regulatory agenda, on the on the on the other part of the agenda, because you you know you mentioned that you know the sixty vote threshold tough to get legislation through in what will be a closely divided Senate either way. Um, so, what does a Republican takeover of the Senate mean for the the Biden regulatory agenda? It'll be slowed <laughs> quite yeah. significantly um, on a whole host of topics. You could see energy, you could see labor, you could see uh, I mean, just any any regulation you can imagine. Congress has. Um, I don't want to say huge authority, but has a say in regulations of the Congressional Review Act and all sorts of other topics um, uh, when it comes to regulation. Um, I also think just on, aside from regulation, an uh, uh, all Republican Congress gives Biden a headache when it comes to things like funding the government, whether Republicans push for immigration provisions or border security. I mean, it, it, if Republicans take both chambers, you have to imagine that the, the administration is going to really have to recalibrate what it um, what it uh, wants to do and what is possible, even on the regular housekeeping issues. And you'll see a lot of panicked govern governing um, uh, for sure when it comes to uh, government funding and the debt ceiling and things of that nature. You know, uh, since you mentioned, um, you know, how the Biden re, uh, administration would react, I, I guess there are kind of two models. Um, the Clinton model, where which was triangulation after he lost Congress in, in 94, and the Obama uh, approach, which is a little different because he, he kept the Senate after 2010, but he did not, um, he didn't follow, uh, Obama didn't follow the, the Clinton model. He kind of uh, kind of stayed the course. Any any early signals about what what Biden might do? Is there one approach that he might tend to versus the other? Very difficult to say. Um, and it's a great question. And one we give a lot of thought to. Um, I don't there's no signals at this moment. But if you look at um, maybe there are some small ball things that he could do. Uh, and listen, I think 
Obama found a useful foil in in Republicans in Congress in from 2010 to 2012 when he was gearing up for his own reelection. Of course, we don't know whether whether Joe Biden will run for reelection, so we don't know if that foil will be useful. But uh, we don't have a sense right now. I mean, M- M- Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, if Republicans take the Senate, will um, has a relationship with Biden and has done kind of housekeeping deals with him in the during the Obama presidency from 2010 to 2016. Um, can they revive that? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there are incentives for both men to do so. Uh, both men are in the twilight, I think it's fair to say, of their career. Um, but remember, I mean, just a lot of stuff got done this Congress. Could they do more? Yes, they could. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, nothing screams out to me as, as painfully obvious, maybe an immigration deal, but I'm very bearish on an immigration deal of the next Congress, or even in the lame duck, although slightly less bearish about immigration of the lame duck. Okay. And, and so um, kind of getting back to the, the, the election outcomes. So let's just say that Democrats defy all the odds, all the expectations. We wake up um, the day after the uh, the midterms on Wednesday or a couple of days after, if it takes a few days to figure out what the results are. And Democrats have kept both houses. Um, uh-huh. you, guys, you guys have done some great analysis about, you know, the, the, the Democratic leadership. Um, kind of where does that go? It's a very good question. I mean, the interesting thing about this election is I'm not really quite sure what Democrats um, would do if they were given another two years in power in the House and in the Senate. Um, uh, Now, I mean, if passed as precedent, I mean, energy policy, uh, tax policy, um, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, voting rights, uh, codifying Roe v. Wade. These are the kinds of things that I think Democrats would focus on. But I, I don't have a I don't have a great sense, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> I don't have a great sense of where it would go. Uh, and then w- it all depends on who the leadership is. If Rep- uh-huh. if Democrats somehow find a way to keep control of the House, uh, you know, it, we, I, I don't know who their leaders would be, whether Nancy Pelosi sees an opportunity to leave on top, um, whether she stays because she's still speaker. It's all up in the air to me. So it, 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 that's probably a good segue into uh, you know talking about the the future of both parties because you know you you do have older leadership especially among House Democrats and a new generation kind of knocking at the door waiting for their chance and they've been waiting a while. Um, so it, any kind of high level views of the future of the Democratic Party? I mean, progressives have been pushing and becoming more influential, but you, you also have this um, kind of mainstream group, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, mainstream Democrats who who, want, who are looking for power. Um, where do you think the, the party is going, just at, at a very high level view? Um, I think, listen, I think there's only one way they could go from 30,000 feet, which is um, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn, the top three House Democrats are in their 80s. So they are they are unless they have a secret that we don't know about, they are they are not going to live forever. So if it's not this Congress, it's next Congress or the Congress after that. I don't think they're going to want to be elevating 84 and 86 year olds to positions of power. I mean, we see that agitation already. Um, So I I think you're going to see a younger generation. Hakeem Jeffries of New York is one of the main 
uh, focuses of attention in in uh, thinking about the new leadership. I don't think it's going to be somebody who's super progressive. I mean, that's just not that's not tenable in a, in a real way. But I do think it's going to be you're going to see new faces, and these new faces are going to be. Um, uh, a, a long time in, in the making. You, we've seen generations of Democrats leave Congress because Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn have kind of had a lock on the leadership. Um, so that's kind of where it is from a, a 30,000 foot, foot view. And Kevin McCarthy is only 57. He's he's a younger man. He's you know th- almost three, 30 years younger, 25 years younger than Nancy Pelosi. So um, uh, the the House Republican leadership is much younger. You know, on that, um, you know, if McCarthy becomes speaker, um, you know, he, he kind of comes out of a bit of an established the establishment wing of the party. I mean, he you know, he collaborated with Paul Ryan and, and Eric Cantor. Um, um, he you know served as uh, as a whip under under Speaker Boehner. Um, but the party underneath him is is evolving. It's becoming more populist, more Trump like. Um and it's, it's, it seems to me that the the relationship that Republicans have with the business community, um, something that that we pay attention to a lot, um, is certainly evolving. Um, you know, kind of walk us through what your views are of, of how Republicans are going to interact and uh, with with big big business generally, but even more broadly, the the, the business community uh, in general. Um, it just seems to be a different Republican Party um, than what I grew up with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, the Republican, the fissures between the Republican Party and the business community is, uh, are, are very pronounced right now. Um, Kevin McCarthy um, is not interested in the Chamber of Commerce and the traditional Republican institutions, although he does get a lot of money from traditional Republican donors, big banks, private equity firms, um, uh, uh, hedge funds, and those are some of the biggest donors in the party. In fact, we've adjusted our coverage at Punchbowl News. We've hired uh, 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 Brendan Peterson from the American Banker to cover financial services and kind of Wall Street's interactions. Wall Street is broadly speaking a a terrible kind of terribly um, uh, unsatisfying uh, way to say it because it's more that it's crypto, it's hedge funds, it's private equity firms, it's the whole kind of financial world's interactions with Washington is what we've begun covering in much more detail. Now, um, it's not your father or grandfather's Republican Party in the sense that McCarthy represents a kind of a new wave of, of you know, ultra-conservative, Trump-aligned, not even ultra-conservative, but Trump-aligned Republicans that um, uh, are not, do not have the, trip to the typical Republican worldview um, and are not interested in, in um, are less interested in what the business community has to say, although they're still amenable and reachable by the business community. You know, since you mentioned Brendan, it's a it's a great hire for you guys. You know, I I followed him um, at the American Banker, and you know, having you know, since I worked for a financial services firm and and spend a lot of time looking at the issues that impact uh, impact the sector, um, it's it's uh, it's a Thank very you. valuable yeah. addition to the team. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, he's been great for us, and he he just he knows more than I could ever I could ever imagine in the space, and it's a huge benefit to our readership. So you know, in the background of all this, with with the 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 midterms and a possible change in power in Washington, uh, at least at the congressional level, you also have a change in power uh, at Twitter. Um, Elon Musk taking over after uh, uh, a very dramatic couple of months, uh, finally 
has taken over. He's, you know, uh, he's removing a lot of people in corporate headquarters. Um, so there's obviously the corporate side of it, but uh, Twitter has just a, such a, has had a huge impact on politics. Um, are there any early indications of how that might change? Or is Twitter be going to become more important for politics, less important for politics? People going to leave the platform? I mean, it just where where is this all going with under the new leadership of of Elon Musk? Um, I think the jury is out uh, still. I think we'll have to see. Um, uh, I, we don't know yet. I mean, there's interesting um, uh, reservations about the Saudis' involvement in Twitter, although they've been investors in Twitter for some time. Um, we'll have to see. I mean, we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know what kind of pl- changes he's going to make to the platform. And I think depending on how he um, uh, conducts himself, what kind of if, if Twitter becomes, a, as what he says, a free for all's hellscape, I think politicians are going to find it a lot less useful. But we saw Chris Murphy, Connecticut Democrat, suggest in a letter to Janet Yellen that the, that the Treasury Department review Twitter's ownership structure because we can't have foreign powers having uh, in his in his estimation, um, uh, uh, any sort of say over the platform. I mean, listen, it's an incredibly useful tool for journalists, for politicians, for for everybody. I mean, in your in your industry as well, to yeah, gather absolutely. public sentiment. And um, I, I I I do think that there is a uh, the jury's still out about how it how it will evolve. I guess the jury's still out too about whether uh, they're going to let Donald Trump back on the platform, and that would kind of coincide with decisions being made for uh, twenty twenty four. Um, so yeah, the, the timing of this is pretty pretty stark. Yeah, he hasn't um, he hasn't given any sense of whether he will let him back on the platform, um, uh, and I think that will be it'll be interesting to see. You know, I, I, one more on this. Um, Maybe we'll we'll make this the, kind of the last question, but you know, there's been so much talk about Republicans looking at social media um, if they take over. Um, does the Musk takeover of Twitter change that calculus at all? Change the calculus of what? Sorry, I missed. Uh, I, I, so the, I, the kind of the policy calculus of of how Republicans are going to look at social media if they're running congressional committees. Yeah, I think I think it's going I think it'll ease it up a little bit when it comes to Twitter specifically, but I think you'll have Democrats who by the way in the Senate even if they're in the minority have incredible sway and they could always find a Republican a Republican um uh in the Senate just as a lot the dynamics are much cleaner or are much more complicated in in an interesting way um and uh they could always find an ally no matter the issue. Well, you know, we could keep going on on all this for a while, um, but I want to be respectful of your time. I know this is this is akin to Super Bowl week um, for <laughs> uh, for folks in D.C. Um, it's a uh, Super Bowl kind of Christmas. I always think the day after uh, Election Day is kind of a an anticlimactic letdown, um, kind of similar to to, to Christmas. Uh, you know, okay, the anticipation's over. Now what? Um, but uh, no, Jake, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has just been. Very helpful and and absolutely fascinating and uh, um, continued success with uh, with Punchball. Absolutely, thanks so much for having me. Great, thanks, Jake. And uh, that wraps up this week's Potomac Perspective. Uh, we'll be back again uh, in a couple of weeks, and uh, Neil will be back with us at that point. Thanks, everybody.